The following is a sermon that was preached at Good News Lutheran Church in Mount Horb, Wisconsin. It was preached on Sunday, December 22, 2019, on the basis of Isaiah 7, verses 10 through 14. For more information or to view our entire sermon library, visit goodnewslc.org. Thank you for listening. Throughout the month of December, we've been talking about some of the things that make Christmas such a predictable holiday. One more thing that's very predictable about Christmas is all of the miracles. I mean, think about it. We entertain our children with stories of a jolly old man in a red suit who rides around in a sleigh that is pulled by flying reindeer. Think about some of the commercials that you see this time of year, commercials that are trying to sell you a car or a piece of jewelry or the latest electronic device, and they incorporate some element of something miraculous. And then, of course, there's the movies. Just think how many Christmas movies involve some sort of miracle. The one that my Netflix suggestions have been trying to get me to watch this year is entitled The Night Before Christmas. Night spelled K-N-I-G-H-T. Apparently, it's about a high school English teacher who has been searching for love, who has been looking for her knight in shining armor to no avail. But then, wouldn't you know it, through the miracle of time travel, a 13th century knight in shining armor shows up in 20th century America, and of course they meet, and of course they fall in love, and of course they live happily ever after. How nice is that? Now, if Netflix tried to release a movie like that as a summer blockbuster, I think it would flop. But they release a movie around Christmas, and evidently people actually watch it. Don't worry, I won't ask for any hands. I think it's just evidence that we long for our lives to be full of the miraculous, for them to be enchanted, you might say, for there to be more to our lives than meets the eye, for there to be forces at work in our lives that exceed not only our expectations, but even our best explanations. And at least for a a brief period out of the year, we sort of allow ourselves to get caught up dreaming that just such a world is actually ours. Of course, when Christmas comes to an end, those very predictable miracles that are incorporated each Christmas, just as predictably come to an end as well. Come December 26th, it's back to cold, hard reality. And even for people who believe that miracles have happened in our world or that miracles can happen in our world, it is very easy for us to live our day-to-day lives as if miracles just don't happen in our world. That everything that does happen has a a very natural explanation, that all causes have effects, that all actions have consequences. Sure, it would be nice if we could live with our head up in the clouds, but we know we have to live our lives with them down here on earth. It sure would be nice if our lives were enchanted with all of this miraculous stuff going on, but we know that we have to live in reality. But what if we could have it both ways? What if we could allow ourselves to get caught up imagining a world full of the miraculous, but also have the certainty that all of those miracles are, in fact, real? What if we could have a life that just captivates our imaginations, but isn't imaginary? 
A life that is fantastic, but isn't fantasy. A life full of miracles, but miracles that are not myths. That's exactly the unpredictable Christmas present that God wants to offer us. And when God offers us a Christmas miracle, it's not just the kind of miracle that comes along only once in a great while and probably not during your lifetime. It's not the sort of thing that God dangles out in front of us like a carrot, that maybe he'll do something miraculous, but only if deep down in our hearts we truly, sincerely, honestly believe that anything is possible. No, when it comes to the Christmas miracle that God wants to give us, he is going to do what he wants to do regardless of your opinion on the matter. In fact, that's what we see as we look at these verses from Isaiah today. That not only is God going to give you a Christmas miracle, but you are going to get a Christmas miracle whether you want one or not. Of course, God would prefer that you actually want one. In fact, God actually invites you to ask for one. That's exactly what's going on in these verses from Isaiah chapter 7. When Isaiah was prophet, the man who was sitting on the throne in Jerusalem reigning as king was a man named Ahaz. Ahaz was a wicked, evil king. Ahaz not only worshipped the false gods of the nations that surrounded his kingdom, but he even got caught up in some of the detestable worship practices of those idols, including sacrificing some of his own sons in fire to those idols. Ahaz, sorry, in Isaiah's day, Ahaz had a problem on his hands. There were two neighboring nations to the north who were trying to invade his kingdom. And to solve that problem, Ahaz came up with the brilliant idea that he was going to form an alliance with the nation of Assyria. Assyria that was notorious for being godless and wicked, cruel, and violent. And to form that alliance, King Ahaz decided that he would take some of the gold and silver that was in the temple in Jerusalem, gold and silver that belonged to God, and he would give that gold and silver, to the king of Assyria as tribute. This was his brilliant plan. I tried to think of how I might describe this in in sort of modern-day terms. Here's the best I came up with. Imagine that the state of Wisconsin and the state of Illinois got in a big fight. In fact, an all-out war. And in order to win that war, the governor of Wisconsin called up Kim Jong-un of North Korea, the evil, cruel dictator, and said, hey, could you do me a favor? I'd like to be your ally. Could you drop a couple of nuclear bombs down south on that terrible land called Illinois? And oh, by the way, in order to pay Kim Jong-un for this favor, the governor of Wisconsin sent police and armed soldiers into every church and every charity in the state to empty their safes and drain their bank accounts kind of what King Ahaz did. He was a wicked, evil king. Or you might say, he was very reasonable. He was very rational. He was very practical. I'm sure King Ahaz knew that what he was doing was wrong. Perhaps he maybe even wished that he didn't have to do it. But what else could he do? There were these two nations from the north who were trying to invade him. What was he supposed to do? Sit around and do nothing? Sit around and wait for God to perform a miracle? Well, yes, that's exactly what God wanted him to do. That was his message through the prophet Isaiah. Through Isaiah, God told Ahaz, you don't need that treaty. You don't need that alliance. I am going to protect you. I will deliver you from your enemies. In fact, ask me for a sign. Ask me for a miracle. A bright flash of lightning up in the sky. An impromptu earthquake beneath your feet. You name it and I'll do it. 
God said. And yet Ahaz refused. He knew that if he asked God for a miracle, and then God did that miracle, he would have to trust God's promise. He would have to trust that God would deliver him. No more scheming, no more alliances. He would have to simply put his trust in God, and Ahaz couldn't do it. So Ahaz refused the miracle God invited him to ask for. It wasn't the first time that someone acted in a way that might be described as very rational and very practical in the name of justifying things that are evil and wicked. It wasn't the first time. It certainly wasn't the last. Again, even for people who believe that miracles have happened, And the miracles can happen. It's very easy to live our day-to-day lives as if miracles just don't happen. That every problem we face, every threat, every challenge to our safety and security, to our livelihood, even to our comfort, we assume has to be solved by very rational, practical means. In fact, we can even use that assumption to do a whole lot of justifying of sin on our own. It might sound something like this. Of course, as I manage my finances, I'm going to consider all of my expenses and make sure all of my bills are paid first before I would consider how I can generously support the spread of the gospel with my offerings. If I did it the other way around, how could I know if enough would be left over? It might sound something like this. Of course, I'm going to drop a small fortune. Of course, I'm going to spend more than I can actually afford. Of course, I'm going to let that credit card bill get just a little bit too high in order to give my kids a Christmas they'll remember, a Christmas they deserve, a Christmas sort of like the ones that all of their friends are getting. Otherwise, they might think I'm a bad parent. Otherwise, I might feel like a failure. Of course, I'm going to use some of the same language that my friends and my peers use. Of course, I'm going to look at and listen to and laugh at all of the things that they do because, or even though some of those things do nothing more than glorify sin, because if I didn't, they'd think I was weird and maybe wouldn't want to have me around anymore. Even when we don't use that rational, practical mindset to actually justify sinful Behavior. It is still very easy for us to think that all of our problems have very rational, very practical solutions. In other words, that if anything good is going to happen in our lives, it's going to have to happen because of us. We might picture our lives as sort of this big, giant, very complicated machine with all kinds of wheels, all kinds of gears, all kinds of moving parts. And of course, the machine is never working exactly how the way it's supposed to. But thankfully, the machine has some dials that we can adjust, and it has some buttons that we can push, and it has some levers that we can pull. And so when things aren't going well, of of course, why wouldn't we adjust the dials and push the buttons and pull the levers? Why wouldn't we try to do something? I mean, what else are we supposed to do? Sit around and wait for a miracle to happen? As was the case with Ahaz, the answer is actually yes. That's exactly what God wants us to do. To know that our lives, as much as we live in cold, hard reality, to know that our lives are also full of the miraculous. But as I mentioned at the beginning, God isn't going to sit around and wait for us to ask for that sign or ask for that miracle. He is going to give us that miracle whether we want it or not. 
And that was Isaiah's second message for wicked King Ahaz. Isaiah said this, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. That was God's miracle for wicked King Ahaz. As you've already heard this morning, that miracle is a big part of our Christmas celebration each year. We often hear those words. You heard the gospel writer Matthew cite those words as fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. The virgin that's being talked about in Isaiah 7, of course, is Jesus' mother Mary. And Emmanuel that's being talked about in Isaiah chapter 7 is, of course, Jesus. Even though Ahaz refused to ask for a sign, that was the miracle God gave him. But that raises a couple of important questions. First of all, did that miracle really happen? I mean, a a virgin giving birth to a child? It doesn't surprise you to know that there are lots and lots of people who would scoff at such an idea. Think it no more realistic than a 13th century knight suddenly appearing through the miracle of time travel. We'll get to that question in just a minute. But first, there's a, a second very important question. You'll notice how Isaiah didn't refer to this miracle as a miracle. He referred to it as a sign, which raises the question, a sign of what? Well, for wicked King Ahaz, it was first of all a sign of judgment. Through this miracle, Isaiah was saying to the entire house of David, the very thing that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, he was saying that David's tall and proud family tree was going to be reduced to a stump. It was going to be chopped down. Ahaz could make all the treaties he wanted. He could make all the alliances he wanted. He could act as reasonably, as rationally, and as practically as he wanted, but it wouldn't matter. His kingdom was going down. When the Messiah would finally be sent into the world, he would be born not to a queen living in a palace, but to a virgin. He would be born in the poorest and the humblest of circumstances. This was, first of all, a sign of judgment. But it was also very much a sign of hope. It was a sign that in those dire circumstances, when it seemed as though everything had gone absolutely wrong, exactly then and exactly there, God would act. God would invade cold, hard reality. God would disrupt this world where all events have explanations and all actions have consequences with a miracle. And not just a a little miracle over here and maybe another one over there, but with one big, giant, capital M, miracle. This child that would be born would be Emmanuel, God with us. God would invade cold, hard reality with his own presence. It was also for King Ahaz and for the entire house of David, for all people, a sign of hope. God doesn't stay far, far away. No, God comes right down to be with us. In Jesus, our very real material world and our very miraculous God, we're joined together as one. And if you think that's something, just consider why he did that in the first place. God did this to deliver blessings to all mankind that were far greater than the ones he had originally promised King Ahaz. He did this so that he could deliver us from far greater enemies than King Ahaz faced. He did this 
so that he could pay the price for all of our sins and so that he could rescue us from the eternal condemnation that otherwise would be guaranteed. Even though Ahaz didn't ask for it, even though really no one would have asked God for it, God gives us a Christmas miracle by sending his son, Jesus Christ. That miracle is also a sign for you and me. But again, it raises the important question, a sign of what? Well, it's not a sign that we should go to the exact opposite extreme. It's not a sign that we should suddenly become very superstitious people. That machine, that big, giant, complicated machine that is our lives, it has dials and buttons and levers, and we can go ahead and and tweak them, and we can push them, and we can pull them, as long as we are not using that to justify sin. It's okay to be rational and practical. God is the one who made us that way. And yet, all the while, we need to also realize that that big, giant machine has been sprinkled from one end to the other in pixie dust. That God has covered our entire world with the miraculous. That he did that in his son, Jesus Christ. We can be absolutely confident that God will provide for us, that he will protect us, that he will be with us and care for us in ways that we can't even expect, much less explain. Maybe even better than that, it's also a sign that God has taken some of that magic pixie dust and he's actually placed it in our hands to be able to use in our lives whenever and wherever we want. This joining together of the material and the miraculous was not just something that happened in the womb of Jesus' virgin mother Mary. It wasn't just something that happened in the flesh and blood of Jesus. It still happens right here, right now among us. It happens through what we call the means of grace. In God's word, in the sacrament of baptism, and in the sacrament of Holy Communion, God is still an Emmanuel kind of God. He is still God with us. He has taken that miraculous pixie dust, given it to us, put it in our hands so that we can use it in our lives whenever and wherever we need it to give us things that we may not be able to see, that we may not be able to sense and experience, that we certainly cannot explain that he would give us the absolute assurance that no matter what we've done, all of our sins are forgiven. That no matter who we are, we have God's unconditional love. That no matter how bad life seems to get, we have the certain hope of eternal life. That's the miracle that God still promises and gives to us each and every day. That brings us back to that first question, though. Is any of this really real? I mean, pixie dust? Come on. The miracle of the virgin birth is kind of a tough one if it were all by itself. It's a miracle that can't really be verified or even falsified if it were all by itself. Thankfully, this miracle of the virgin birth didn't stay all by itself. You heard that in today's second reading. How, yes, according to his earthly life, Jesus looked like just another human being, another descendant from David's family tree, But, but every claim about Jesus and about his origins was verified, was demonstrated. How? In his resurrection from the dead. God doesn't just offer us a Christmas miracle. God offers us a Christmas miracle that is actually real. Whether we want it or not. How much better to want it though, right? I think God created us that way. 
Not just to be rational, practical people, but also to want our lives to be enchanted. Christmas kind of proves it, doesn't it? That we do this each and every year, that we get caught up imagining a life that is miraculous and full of enchantment, a life where there is more than meets the eye, where there are forces at work that exceed our expectations and even our best explanations. It is very predictable for human beings to get caught up imagining that that might be true. What's truly unpredictable is that God would give us that life that so captivates our imagination. And the best part is, it's actually real. Amen.